Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. The Rohingya are widely recognized as one of the most persecuted and vulnerable communities in the world. Most of us first heard of them in around 2017 when the worst period of violence took place in Myanmar. It was a horrifying massacre and it was all over the news and social media. However, what many may not realize is that the persecution of the Rohingya people in Myanmar stretches back decades to when Myanmar was called Burma. They have endured long-standing oppression and they are a people the world easily forgets about. The Rohingya once called Myanmar home, but to escape genocide and ethnic cleansing and unimaginable violence, most fled to Bangladesh, where today they live in refugee camps. It is a horrible situation, and the ones that were supposed to help them are the ones complicit of their suffering, and that includes NGOs and the United Nations. Joining us as a guest today is journalist Kamil Ahmed, who has extensively spent time in the refugee camps and recently published a book titled I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Over Seas and Rivers. It is a powerful and heartbreaking account. Together with Kamil, we delve into the historical context of the Rohingya, their ongoing persecution, and their current circumstances. We strive to unravel the heart of their perpetual suffering, bringing to light the critical question, have we failed the Rohingya? Before we get started, if you would like to support, if you would like to help out, do consider being a patron. It Your contribution goes a long way. There's also a newsletter and a store, so do check them out too. There's so many different ways to contribute and it really, it really helps. So take a look at them and uh, yeah, let's get this started and here we go. Thanks for uh, doing this. This was great. Uh, I really loved the book. It was heartbreaking. It was a rough read. Uh, it was, you know, it was a lot to take in. If you're looking for a feel-good book, this is not it, but it's a very important one. I remember first hearing about the Rohingya crisis in 2017. I remember it being all over social media, all over the news. And when I read your book, one of the things that I discovered was that the persecution on this group of people have been going on far back than 2017, way far back, and we're only coming in now. So, so let's put this into context for the people who are listening. As an ethnic group, who are exactly the Rohingya people and what is their origin story? The Rohingya are a mostly Muslim ethnic group who live between, or who live on the borders of Bangladesh and Myanmar in a place now called Rakhine State, but historically was known as, for a long time, as the Arakan Kingdom. And so, like a lot of now Myanmar's, like, frontier regions it has kind of a there's a certain kind of separatist identity to it like people believe they're from they're not necessarily part of this like one Myanmar um they were their own kingdoms they have their own ethnicities their own languages reli- religious identities um right and so the Rohingya are not the only group from Arakan there's mm-hmm. the like what like the Rakhine ethnicity as well um but yes, yeah, so they're mostly focused in the northern part of the state. Uh, and they, when it comes to origin story, like I kind of contest that the idea that the, there is an origin story. Like I think part of what has happened to them goes back to that, to what is their origin? Are they, so what kind of Myanmar's rulers for the last few decades have said is this idea that Actually, they're not from here. They're not from Rakhine State. They're Bangladeshis who have kind of filtered over mostly during like, the British colonial period um, that they were brought over as laborers by the British. Um, I think the reality probably is more complex than... And, and there's other, like, from the Rohingya side, there are also, like, ideas about, like, they came from 
kind of traders and like they're this mix of people um and i think really it's just like an example of a place that didn't fit into the borders afterwards after they were drawn up kingdoms like the arakanese kingdom the the mughals rulers they like the borders between like mughal ruled bengal and arakanese kingdom changed so many times um and the river that separates rakhine state and or arakan kingdom and bengal is not very wide the idea i think that no one ever crossed it is a bit like ridiculous um that like you had rakhine people on one side and bengali people on one side i mean not just ridiculous it's not true like there's Rak- there's rakhine people who are bangladeshi citizens um in, in like the rakhine villages and towns and it went quite far into what is now bangladesh at some point um and then you also had like portuguese the portuguese empire you had arakanese like pirates who like would like kidnap people to sell as slaves so there was all there were all these ways that people for centuries used to move um between like across this border between what is now bangladesh and myanmar so yeah i said long way of saying i don't think there's an orange story i think they're just people who are there uh, right. and they don't fit into like a neat box of like the idea is that they're bengali or they're not um and it's not like uh, even the idea of what a bengali is is like complicated bengal has so many dialects and different ethnicities itself so um so what you're saying is it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter like it doesn't matter to the idea of origin story always with the rohingya comes back to like should they be there and in a way well should they be there does that justify trying to get rid of them right and it doesn't matter they they were just there they belong there they've been there they have centuries of presence um, right and it's really just a question of what i think is a false who what is any ethnicity's origin story why do we care about why this Rohing, why the rohingya people are in this place what like i think maybe yes because they're a minority in a place where in a country where they seem so different from everyone else but mm-hmm. yeah i think it's it's kind of a false it's one of those things confused by colonialism right. and well um in 1948 burma becomes a independent country and the new government recognizes all citizens are equal and that includes the rohingya people and other minority groups so it starts off good but in 1962 uh the military takes over overthrows the government and then establishes the military government and this changes things for the rohingya people can you tell us more about how you know what are the changes so the changes for the rohingya come over time but really yeah, in the 70s uh and 80s they they really like kick in um yeah one of the earliest was the removal of the rohingya language from the kind of state broadcasting they used to like alongside all other languages have have like an hour or two that were broadcast on like public radio in rohingya uh, and anyone could listen to it and that was removed in the 60s and that was kind of part of the the kind of removal of the rohingya from like the public the national identity yeah. and there is more and more stages of that 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 come over the decades um and it, it's really all about like taking them 
Myanmar is multi-ethnic and like there are like, more than a hundred ethnicities. As somehow now the Rohingya are not going to be classed as one. And so they're removed from public life, they're removed from radio, slowly like made more difficult to go into like higher education. They face more difficulties and like more permits and more checks just to travel between states or areas. Um, whereas previously, like they've been able to like go to university in any part of the country and like even get scholarships and stuff like that. Now they can't even like move between one place and another um, without like facing checks, facing humiliation. Um, there's something that I think is like slightly not like not completely formalized at first, but becomes formalized, um, becomes something that's put into law. Um, and it extends to education, healthcare, work, just just moving anywhere, movement in particular. They're, they're just increasingly confined to like their areas and they're not supposed to go beyond them. And in 78, there's this uh, military operation, which is kind of a dragon on the king. face of it, a census. Yeah, Dragon King. It, on the Nagamin, it's on the face of it, it's a census, but. What it is, is it's like demanding the Rohingya proved they belong, that they have to have the paperwork, that they're from here, not from somewhere else. And in like the 70s, in like a very like remote, isolated, neglected area, neglected area, lots of people don't have that paperwork. Like mm-hmm. any other ethnicity wouldn't have that paperwork either. And so a lot of the Rohingya are scared because what is happening is they're being arrested if they don't have it. And they're... And so people are terrified. And so there is also violence and there's arrest and there's people People are just trying to get out because they think they're going to prison for not having paperwork. And what this does, it kind of creates... It forces people to Bangladesh. And this is like the first time like in like really large amounts Rohingya go... To Bangladesh and it's the first time there's refugee camps there and yeah I'm sure like, we'll talk about more about what the conditions were like there later but yeah, yeah. They, they, they briefly like a lot of Rohingya are in are in like Bangladeshi refugee camps and then soon after some of them like they're forced to return basically or compelled to return and but where they come back to is what has like really started in the last few years and like the opera the military operation set out so what happened with the military operation is some people did have the paperwork they could yeah. prove they belonged and that pissed so, off them yeah so those people escaped like arrest it, they i mean some of them not all of them did they some of them still got arrested until they could prove it or whatever but in 1982 a new citizenship law is passed and like there's a set of like national recognized ethnicities and the Rohingya are excluded. And basically through a bunch of provisions, it basically sets out that the Rohingya are no longer citizens of Myanmar. And that means anyone who could prove they were born here, they belonged here, it doesn't count anymore. They're, they're now, just because they're Rohingya, they're not citizens. And this just formalizes everything that was happened happening and opens the door to a lot worse so after that you have force a big increase in like forced labor so like the military coming to villages and just saying you're gonna work 
for us and like carry our carry our goods, build things for us, or even be like human shields when they're fighting. Um and like they just they take people's land, they seize their land, they build this system where Rohingya are completely isolated from everything else, unrepresented, no place in politics, reducing shrinking place in education. Right. No space in like government. Mm. They're just isolated, completely like removed from public life. Who's who's benefiting from this? Is this is this to get more votes? Is this just a religious matter? Is this just a, a bunch of people have an illusion that Myanmar needs to be a certain one religion, one kind of ethnicity? I think it's partly so it's like under the military rule and they win. And it, it's the military trying to enforce I don't think it's like necessarily religious. Like you have other religions and faiths. You have other religions. You have other Muslims as well. You have like other Muslims who are in other parts of Myanmar who are from different ethnicities or like who are like Burmese ethnicity or like Indian. Like, yeah, there's a lot of uh, Muslims who are like from kind of Indian trader origins. Um, In a way, like they might, a lot of them might have more recent come than Rohingya but they are not treated like I don't want to say they don't have any discrimination but it's not this it's nowhere near the same like you, you have it in a lot of places after like the colonial period like when the countries become independent and their new borders are like multi-ethnic and so they now have to try and build like a national identity yeah. and like fuse together lots of different ethnicities and like often trample over like a lot of a lot of those different ethnicities to try and create like one unifying type of voice voice yeah and like that often like comes down to it it might come to religion it might come to language like there's one language or whatever uh and i think Myanmar's trying to do that but it ends up with like a lot of these places on the borders actually they don't want they either want independence or autonomy or something like they don't want to be kind of forced into this one idea. And the, with the Rohingya, I think like why they do it for sure, it's it's like a very difficult question to answer. But I think there's a part of it where they don't fit into it. Like they are Mus- like they're they're Muslim, they speak a different language. There's a lot of racism here as well. Like they look different, different significantly. Right. Uh, and I think also they're on the border with Bangladesh. At the edge? And like they're at the edge. Um, and it just, it's like, I think this is, it's just, it's a thing that happens in a lot of other places. Is, but... is, is, this is, this is the military, but are the people and citizens of Myanmar, are they, are they for this or they don't really care? Or I think there's for a, a long few time, against them. I think for a long time, the citizens are not maybe that aware of what's happening. Um, like I said, you've got to remember that most of the country, a lot of the country is like also... Uh, the funny thing is the Rohingya aren't really rebelling. They actually want to be part of... Yeah. They, they want kind of peace and to be part of like the nation. They want their citizenship. You've got, but if you go to like Kachin or Karan or in state like there are people rebelling 
So a lot of the country they've got their own stuff going on and it's like they've got problems as well. Mm. Um and I just don't think many people know what's happening to the Rohingya. And yeah, they don't, I don't think necessarily care for most of the time. But it, it when that starts to change is like the 2000 around the 2010s, bit before, bit I know, definitely after. Um and then it does take on like a far more like religious tone. Because right. you have like extremist Buddhist groups who are using pretty much basically genocidal language and saying yes that these are intruders um there's this idea like uh of like muslims came from the west and they've come into like buddhist or hindu lands and like encroached and taken over like they've they've crept invaded quote unquote. yeah they've, they've they've invaded from like the east from the west all right so um, the story just kind of escalates and it yeah, just keeps so adding there's on. this idea that this is what the Rohingya are, like they're people, they're doing this, they're taking over. They're like Bengalis who are coming over and taking over. And I think also by that time, there's an element of like uh you'll see like with the Uyghurs and as well, like the states and like groups that are doing this will also put that into like a war and terror narrative, like these are extremist Muslims who are like threatening us and who are gonna try and kill us and take like spread take over um and so i think that might be also why over like after the 2000s it gets that side of it gets a lot worse right um so yeah for a long time i think it's really happening in isolation but from like the 2000s at some point in the 2000s it gets a really a lot it escalate escalate like it becomes that's where you start to see not just military operations against the Rohingya, but like riots and like ethnic like violence and like their their neighbors now like attacking them. Like regular um, civilian like, people, yes, regular so, citizens yeah. taking it out on them. Yeah. So either working with the military or like actually like something happens and then they turn against them and attack them. Um the biggest example is 2012 and like massive. So in Sitwe, which is like the capital of Rakhine State. Which is with there is like quite a lot of there were quite a lot of Rohingya there and they were living in various areas. Um, and then there was this story of like the rape of a Rakhine girl, and then and it was blamed on some Rohingya, and then later on, like a group burnt a uh uh a bus of like Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and it set off like these really and uh, the, the people on the bus died, and so it set off like these riots that just uh they went for and rights really by younger people so yeah okay. and like yeah really like violent riots and what the result of that was the rohingya were who were in situa were all forced to leave their homes and they were put into idp camps on the in displacement camps on the edge of like the city and so they were basically ghettoized um and you would see later like the minimum police were like put out statements like we've arrested a Rohingya in this part of Sitwe for illegally shopping outside of his zone. So they became like completely ghettoized. So in the end, so what you happen is in the last 20 years or so, like that really, like everything, ordinary people were turned against yeah. the Rohingya. And there were like a lot of like, basically genocidal language and like it really is often like genocidal like the whole idea of like them being pests often mm-hmm. like um like like racial slurs used against them like very commonly 
you, like racial slurs were used against them. Um, and that this idea that it needs to be wiped out, that, that's where it kind of, so where you take from like the 70s and like the slow systematic deprivation of all their rights, it gets towards more recently wiping them out. So they're systematically persecuted. They can't vote. They don't have any rights. They're stateless. They can't leave and they can't stay. Um, there's been a lot of military campaigns against them and a lot of them flee to Bangladesh. Mm. What happens when they reach Bangladesh? What is what is there for them? And how does Bangladesh see them? Do they provide hospitality or that's a whole other persecution happening over there? So Bangladesh initially gives them shelter. It, it like allows them to come in and gives them shelter in 78. Um, same thing in 91 more well known in 2017 and in a couple periods in between but when there it doesn't give much and in fact it doesn't want them to stay so okay. 78 in particular is a difficult like Bangladesh in 78 is only like seven years old yeah um having been like very like they just came out of a war just came out of a war and pre prior to that war had been economically deprived uh so it it, it was building up so it, it it wasn't in a great position to host so many refugees um but what it start i think what happened in 78 is it basically you end up with like the blueprint print for like sending them or like trying to like make life miserable um as much as like it was difficult for bangladesh what it did and i don't think it what it did and what like the un and humanitarian organizations were basically compliant in was a creating a situation like inhumane situation to force them back um and like the biggest like clearest example was like it really drastically cut very soon afterwards like a few months afterwards drastically cut food rations to the point that people were dying from malnutrition wow. um i'm like the estimate is like the, the assessment was that more people died in bangladesh from lack of food than in myanmar from the military, military operation uh wow. and that's crazy so by the end of 78 like people are going back they're being sent back and so that's kind of the blueprint right like it lets them in it let, let, allows the like situation to call and then it does like it, it it does bangladesh and the un have like their agreements with myanmar to take them back myanmar says okay we will we'll accept these people back but like in 78 it did to some extent accept that they were like they at least they lived here like they did come they did come to your country from our country but that obviously changes with the citizenship law in 82 but right. um, so basically they're not coming f as citizens of a country they're just kind of like yeah. ghost or something that yeah. are just so, with no background yeah so um basically 91 this exact from 91 like it's kind of a bit unclear like in that situation when the start date was like it, it wasn't like in 2017 we know a date like there was a big the massacre started and people started coming right in, like then 78 sorry in 2017 we know the start that into 78 and 91 it's more like 
people start coming from different places at different times but it it all kind of comes together um but yeah in 91 like by this point there is they are no longer citizens at all they and a lot more people come like about 250,000 and then um, there's another military in 1991 there's another just to give a context to yeah. listeners, in well, it's, yeah it's military operation and all the like and it's called um, clean clean and beautiful nation yeah that's the name exactly. of the operation yeah and, and 250,000 Rohingya fleet to Bangladesh I think I read somewhere yeah yeah so that military operation which is Iraq also the backdrop to the backdrop to the military operation is also like this increased like forced labor and like taking of their land and like violence in like the whole kind of everything that had been taken away from them is now being amped up uh-huh. and so yeah around 250,000 people go to Bangladesh and Bangladesh allows them in again um but again like very soon it's doing deals like repatriation deals with Myanmar to like take them back um and Myanmar will often like agree like even now once we like it does these deals it will make agreements to take people back but it doesn't make it doesn't really change anything it doesn't it's a sick cycle yeah, it's like uh, it's a diplomatic diplomatic agreement. It doesn't even have an argument with its neighboring country by refusing completely to say to take them. Like so, a lot of people like people don't necessarily want to go back, um, but not after, especially if you were one of the people who went in seventy eight to Bangladesh. You've now had to flee your country twice through. And you've seen, like, in 78, you were told, like, conditions were made safe in, in like, your home. Mm-hmm. And that, so, so you should return. But you've seen between 78 and 91 that it wasn't safe at all. And it got much, much worse. And so yeah. people don't really want to go back. So you have Bangladesh, again, doing the same kind of thing, like, creating harsher conditions. It wants to make it uncomfortable. Like you, you don't. They don't want the Rohingya to be like happy living in the camps, which is like ridiculous. Yeah, because they're like, un. They're really like, really temporary basic shelters, bamboo and tarpaulin, and they're bad now. Like in seventy eight and ninety, when like thing yeah all of like the technology for like sewage and water pumps and stuff would have been much worse uh, like they're not comfortable they weren't comfortable places to live um so but yeah it, it starts forcing it starts kind of wanting to get people back immediately like it, it wanted to get people back in 91 like it wanted to get really quickly get everyone back but it finds that people don't want to this time like people are more resistant yeah. Um, so that's the same thing, but with like food and, but it also this now adds like restriction on education, restriction on movement. Um, people like arresting people in front of them, like anyone who's like a kind of advocate, advocate for the Rohingya and like set, set, trying to put forward like demands for like safety if they return, they get arrested. Um, uh, as there's a book, there's a guy in the book called Zia who um so his family are like one of these families who are resisting being sent back 
and like they have their ration books confiscated. Um, he has his uncles like repeatedly put into prison and like just made up charges, like just constantly facing court cases. And and it's all basically to put pressure on them to like sign the consent form and say they'll go back. And so there's different ways that Bangladesh tries to like manufacture consent for the Rohingya to go back. One is like take their Russian book away. Another is like like take like mass consent. So you just take everyone because it the way it's supposed to be is every individual person is asked. They have to give. They have to have permission to be yeah. sent back. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to go back? And so for a while, and but and for a while, for a period, the UN withdrew from the re- repatriation process because it recognized it was forced. But then, like a year later, it comes back in, and like I've spoken to someone who's witnessed, um, like loads of people were taken to the river, they were about to put in boats, and then told. Um, oh, you're going back home. And like they started crying because they didn't know what was happening. Um, and there, there was a, I think, MSF report that's like, it was a quite a recent report looking back at previous mistakes. And it said what had happened was sometimes if you said to a group of people, you're going, the plan is to take you here, unless you say, I don't want to, huh. that's not. Like the consent is saying I don't want to, not saying I want to, and like in a group, like you're all told. So and like the power dynamic is like such that you they don't, don't want to feel up. like they can speak up because yeah. they're like supposed to be grateful for like a country taking them in and everything like that, and they're not from this country. And so this is often like the narrative, right? Like the Rohingya are supposed to be, um, supposed to be grateful. They're supposed to be um and like this isn't their country they should they have to accept what they're given they shouldn't ask for too much um so yeah that's what happens and so like a lot of people bring us and then you do actually also have examples of people actually just being forced back like there, there were boats that of like people fought on there were at least one occasion where people were at gunpoint like documented occasion people on gunpoint were put onto a boat and sent back wow. uh, and so yeah that's that's what they have and i think the kind of story and like where the period where i get into like the phase of this where i kind of you you visit at 2012 the first time i visit in 2015 and like but it's this period between 2017 and like the 90s and what that is like my introduction to like the rohingya in bangladesh and that's the part that's that's like my starting point my yeah. starting point is the people who didn't go back in the 1990s who managed to stay and like in Bangladesh who's managed to stay in Bangladesh officially like 70,000 so that's 70,000 people who were registered by the UN in like the 1990s after like the operation clean beautiful nation and who yeah so they were registered under UNHCR but like after, I think 1992, Bangladesh stops registering refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you remember, Bangladesh isn't a signatory to the Refugee Convention. Like a lot of countries in Asia, it's not a signatory. So it kind of does what it wants. And so even as it's sending people back to Myanmar, more people are coming. Like in this, at the same time, boats are going in both directions. Um, 
And so what people don't realize often these days is that actually the camps that are now the world's largest refugee camps have existed for since 1992. They were, you had registered people who had some like UN support, and then you also had unregistered camps. People who, people who came in, who basically managed to sneak in and were never registered by the Bangladeshi government, never registered by the UN and lived in like informal settlements near those, near those other camps. And for both of them, what you have is like life made really hard, like extremely hard. So one of the biggest examples is education. Like they're not allowed to study. They're given like the most basic form of education by the UN. And if you're in their formal camps, none. Um, the Rohingya solution to that was like Rohingya would, those who had some education would teach someone else. And then they'd create like tuition centers where like they would create their own like informal curriculum and just pass the knowledge on. And, and it's not even like an adult teaching a younger. It's like uh, you teach someone two years younger than you. Like it's just passing on as much information to 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 whoever is younger, like the, a year or two below you as right. possible to just keep some form of knowledge and education alive and like skills alive, like the skills they would need for 10 years, 20 years down the line to be able to return to Myanmar and be active in public life, like to, to be teachers, doctors, to be in politics, because their fear is of like a lost generation, um, like a whole generation of people who, who can't write, read, write, can't like don't haven't studied math, science, aren't, aren't able to get, if, if they return to Myanmar, what can they do? But Bangladesh actually like stops those, like it closes them down. It like beats people for studying, for teaching. Um, it keeps rations reduced. It like for the informal settlements, it stops NGOs from working with them. Uh, it stops NGOs from working with them. Yeah. Uh, wow. it, lots of things basically. It does that, almost anything it can to like, and it, and it like arrests like anyone who's like, publicly who like advocates for them who might try to like be a bit of an activist like it just really confines them to the most basic existence um with the idea that like they should go back they shouldn't be able to assimilate they shouldn't be able like it, it would be pretty easy like the idea is that they don't want to have them assimilate and like say they're Bangladeshis and now we have an extra burden of like hundreds of thousands more people to to look after in yeah like a quite it, that is a particularly poor part of the country um so so what are to be to be like also bangladesh doesn't get much help from anywhere else also during this period like, why not is it because they don't want it or is it because they're not offering what are the ngos they want it. it's, it's not just the ngos like in the united they, nations the UN is there. Um, I think it's not that rare a thing that a country sometimes doesn't want to, it is the idea of a pull factor. It doesn't want it to be too good. I, I, they would say too good. 
Um, so like the, the quote from like 78 was like this official saying, I don't, I don't want fat well-fed refugees. Um, it's, it doesn't want things to be too comfortable that more people come. Right. Which I think is established like a myth. People don't come because of that. But um, so there is an element of that. I think that comes later more than in the 90s. But also like, so Bangladesh, I think this is faded now, but there was a period where like other Muslim majority countries or like populations would kind of specifically criticize Bangladesh and this fit into like politics of like Bangladeshi politics as well and like how the current ruling party were seen compared to like others uh like seen as secularists and like maybe anti-Muslim it is not true at all because a lot of this happened under the opposition party or under the military um it's not tied to a party um and it was sometimes played up how many Rohingya, there are some Rohingya in Saudi Arabia and some in Pakistan. It was never more than Bangladesh. I don't think ever close to Bangladesh. Like, so they have, I think it's just like really bad thinking. It's just, it's short-term thinking of like, this is how, we can't have this burden. We can't have like this burden of people to look after. How do we stop it like quickly? And it leads them to like the most inhumane kind of yeah. like, policies. Uh, and yeah, the one of the worst examples actually is like around like early 2000s. Uh, the government suspended the relocation program. So the re- so, so like resettling people to third countries. So like uh the UK, Canada. I'm not sure how much. So the government I think Canada was one of them. You the US... government sorry, go ahead. The government suspends this doesn't allow people to go to other countries where they could have a chance to for a better life. Yeah, exactly. So like there's a guy, another guy that like who's a key character in the book is Nobby, and he was like he was supposed to come to the UK. Like yeah. he had been, he'd got the place and he'd been buying stuff. Like he'd been buying it, like luggage and clothes and everything to get ready. He was very close. I think like a week or two away and they canceled the scheme and he's no longer going. Um, um, and he was one of those who had basically grown up like in, since the nineties, like early nineties, grown up in Bangladesh. Um, and he'd like got like really quite well educated he had he he was like quite like active like trying to do loads of stuff for his community but also like felt pretty hopeless like whatever you get this education but you're not allowed to work Mm -hmm. so what do you do with it like your, your whole future is kind of confined to living in a camp so he was really looking forward to living going to like live anywhere right um yeah. and like somewhere he could go and study like do higher education and that was stripped away from him and the idea is like part of this thing of like we don't want like people being resettled we don't want people like coming for the idea that they'll be resettled um and that still hasn't been taken away really like it's still not really we've had there been a couple of like exceptions recently of people being resettled for security reasons like for their protection 
but like you would think now i i i think there was also an argument as well that they don't want a partial they don't want people taking 10000 they don't want people taking 10000 they don't want people taking they don't want it doesn't make the argument i think was like it doesn't make much difference to us if like 10000 rohingya go and we still have 200000 oh um okay. it's pretty and so there weren't people offering to take more um and so that was part of the argument and i think it still is like there's a little bit more talk now about the us and canada taking some but it it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere and i'm not sure who's to blame or whether it's like bangladesh doesn't want to accept this until people are willing to take like a significant amount um which i think with like politics so we know there's a million people no one's going to take there aren't enough countries that are going to take enough because they don't they don't see the rohingya as european countries or us canada they don't see the rohingya as like people they need to help really i don't think um there's not much for about and like i think 2017 is now for of as a distant event yeah. yeah let's let's talk about let's keep let's before we start that let's get into context yeah. here 2016 around 2016 I, I hope i'm pronouncing her name right uh ang san suki uh it becomes a leader and uh, she wins no yeah she becomes a leader uh she had won the election a while ago and then the military didn't allow her allow her to have power so they put her in house arrest she was praised she won the nobel peace prize and then but she was in house arrest for a long time and then correct me if i'm wrong and in 2016 she becomes she finally becomes a leader yeah. and at the same year right after uh there's another huge military campaign probably one of the worst ones and uh over 700,000 people flee to bangladesh what was so different about this is that it becomes kind of a social media viral campaign hashtag #pray for rohingya hashtag #save rohingya so all of a sudden it becomes kind of a household name people start to recognize it it's on the map now and i think it was one of the first times where like an online campaign about a about a humanitarian crisis happened and then after that there was a lot more coming but so yeah so that went viral and so that went viral and now you can continue on i don't know if that made the fact that people now know about it or knew about it at the time made a big difference or not but um i guess not since we're still here talking about it so in 2016 you have one military operation uh i think it's like 150,000 people something like that go to bangladesh um and it's the same it, it, it's almost like a mini version of what happens a year later um so basically you have a group called the Harakan Rohingya Salvation Army ARSA um very small group very little kind of ability cap- capacity um say they're fighting for like the liberation of the rohingya there are a lot of like some people believe they're genuine some people believe they don't mm-hmm. uh like lots of theories about who they might be funded or who might they might be working with but anyway small group they attack like Burmese military posts and like kill some like border guards and the military respond with massacres on 
Rohingya villages, and that sends like about one hundred fifty thousand to to Bangladesh, um, and then it kind of like dies down. Um, and so this is the first kind of big thing related to the Rohingya under Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, and so it's, I think there's a couple of things. So like, yeah, there's the social media element, like there's footage of some of the stuff that's happening. There's footage of Rohingya coming across the borders. It just all spread. There was some of this in 20 to 2012, right? Since it way, but it, it's, it's like more graphic and it's just like social media has come a long way, even in four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was, I think what happened in 2012 that was also the, that was the first time a lot of people were talking about genocide. So there are a few more, there are more not the general public awareness of Rohingya isn't there yet, but mm-hmm. there are people who are like more involved in campaigning for them. And so like the 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 basis kind of started in 2012. The people trying to raise awareness about the Rohingya in 2012. So from 2012, and so in 2016, you you hear a bit more of, about them. Uh, and then the other element of it is like. This kind of Aung San Suu Kyi was supposed to be like this symbol for democracy and everything in Myanmar was supposed to be going well. And like we had like under the Obama administration as well, like it's all this, there was, there was all this talk of opening up, like Myanmar opening up. And like after all these years of like military rule and like there were so many like icons of resistance against the military before like Aung San Suu Kyi was one the other was like you know like the Burmese monks who would like go to protest and get beaten the Buddhist monks sorry who go go and get beaten by the military so like there was all these like it was like these like images that everyone knew in the world of like people the people fighting up against the military and now it's kind of like well some of those people are now in power but like you have this violence against yeah an ethnic minority um but to be honest like 2016 it was a bit quiet like it happened and then it like faded and like it passed and there were questions because Aung San Suu Kyi in this period just didn't say anything yeah so let's Um, talk about how she goes from being a hero to the villain of the story she was a symbol of hope for the Rohingya people people thought that she would bring change right yeah and then yeah like the Rohingya like anyone like like they weren't different to the rest of the country like a lot of them thought she was the symbol of democracy she was the person who was like going to bring a change for them. But she doesn't like when all of this happens around in 2016, October 2016, she doesn't say anything. Um, and she like from the moment she's come into power, like there is awareness, like there are people asking, like in international settings, what is she going to help them? And she doesn't say anything about them. So at this period, there's an idea of, well, like, why isn't she saying anything like that's the question why why is she silent if she's like she's supposed to be this symbol of hope why is she silent so what happens then and that those questions continue for a while and then in august 2017 asa carry out a second attack similar thing with like machetes a couple of guns basically mobs like overwhelm some border posts again and kill some border guards and this time the military operation is way bigger uh it's really intense and like it seems very organized um 
the like the worst example is I think that I've come across and most people is like a place called Tolatoli where like thousands were killed and I think the organization was really like they had a plan of how people were encouraged to stay in the village told they would be safe the next morning it was attacked it was encircled there was talk about people like like Rakhine civilians being given military uniforms there were there was like a helicopter that poured like Mm-hmm. like fuel like burning like just like kind of attack them from the sky rocket it was and they were just trapped so it was there was this planned element to 2017 in the way the military operations attack and it just like kind of like ripped through villages it's so much more intense and it, it's a major like global news story like it's one of the biggest stories in the world because also you see like by this point also you have like drones in news it was like established so you have like these drone footage it, yeah this this drone footage of like the Bangladesh border and just like massive like never-ending queues of people like walking through paddy fields or like photographers have all arrived and they've gone to like the river and they will take people and so Aung San Suu Kyi is obviously questioned far more and this time she's not silent she's actually kind of she's justifying it and like this idea like i said this whole like war on terror narrative that has been applied to the rohingya like it's very easy to take a muslim minority and say they're terrorists and they're associated with they're associated with like extremists or whatever and then and that we need to get rid of them we need Mm -hmm. to flush them out so like the rohingya are treated as like and so, and she kind of, she basically backs that. She, she says that these are clearance operations, they call them. Uh, and we're, we're getting rid of like the terrorist threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and she backs that. Um, and so she actually kind of becomes the face. I, I think like the idea that she's the villain slightly ignores that the military has been doing this for decades. Right. She's not the reason it happened. Yeah. And I don't think she ordered it. Like the military have been doing this for decades. But what one person said is like she possibly eased the ability to happen for it to happen and allowed the public to support it. Because oh. like in the past where like people have been anti-military because they wanted they didn't like the military, like the whole throughout the nation, people didn't like the military. They all had different reason maybe they were her supporters or they were from the ethnic minor other ethnic minorities now she's in power and she's supporting it and they don't like her being criticized and she's saying it's like she's so they support what she supports and so the public actually are supportive of the military operation it seems like from the outside like all what you see is a very supportive public who have also again like we spoke about like the genocide of languages stuff as well like that's creeped into like society um so you have these these really negative attitudes of the rohingya that have come through and then now the leader the the person who was like the hope and who people have supported for so long now supporting this military operation against them and that was like the role she played she kind of in a way like justified it she allowed like more public support for it wow um and she continues with that because like when a case is taken to the international criminal court sorry international courts of justice there is an investigation at the icc but 
the actual genocide cases at the Court of Justice, which is like the UN's criminal court, and it's taken by Gambia. Aung San Suu Kyi actually represents the military. Like she goes, she is the person who defends the military in court and says, this is a genocide. These things didn't really happen. Um, and actually things are fine. Like they say, it's safe for them. Um, so yeah, she really like goes from being this like face for democracy, especially loved in the West. Like Oprah. Yeah, she was like a I I guess like a, a person who was like very easy to support as like Yeah. She was trending uh, for a yeah, while. Yeah, a symbol of hope, but then it's funny. She kind that. of fails like really basic expectations like of like kind of human rights expectations, like of what you would expect from a leader. Yeah. Um and First, by being silent and then basically supporting the military, defending. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's basically her, her story until, and then when she's imprisoned again after the coup a couple of years ago, she, um, many of her supporters now are like, oh, have actually become more supportive of the Rohingya now because they're now like, oh, we realized what was happening like we realized that the military did to you what is going to do to us now um but yeah so it, it, it's been quite a lot has happened there in the last few years um so the yeah. bangladesh bangladesh government isn't helping the Myanmar government isn't helping the symbol of hope didn't help the united nations and ngos aren't really doing much or can't do much so has the world basically failed Ringa refugees? Yeah, I I think so. Because I think even places where they've seen hope, they found that so the the other element of like the thing that took me there in 2015 was the boat crisis, was like boats capsizing at sea, being found, like left at sea, pulled out by various governments to just be there, and mass graves being found on Thailand because when they couldn't live in Bangladesh, they couldn't live in Myanmar, people were trying to get there was this idea that Malaysia was like a good place to be right like it was a place that was said the right thing like it was for like the southeast asian nations the most outspoken in support um always has this reputation as like being friendly to muslims has a good economy like it's it's a much more prosperous nation than bangladesh um like somewhere you could work live a bit more freely but the only way to get there like ring are completely stateless they don't have passports no ring can't Apart from unless they get forged passports, they can't take a flight anywhere. Right, right. And they so they had to go by boats. And so like traffickers created this system where they took them from Bangladesh to Thailand, held them in camps, demanded ransoms from their families, and then took them into Malaysia. Uh and I think this is one of the most important like points of the story. Like a transnational network was created that exploited the Rohingya, made millions, maybe, who knows, maybe much, much more uh, of, like, basically trading the Rohingya because traffickers would sell them from one to another um, to get them to Malaysia. And actually what they found in Malaysia was possibly a little bit better than Bangladesh in some ways. Some people were able to work, but actually exposed to being arrested and stuck in detention centers 
Malaysia often did like a lot of all of the nations in Southeast Asia like would type towed them back out to see if they found if they intercepted them. Um and yeah, like Rohingya constantly at threat of being arrested. And now in the last few years, it's become much, much worse. It, like during Ramadan, there was a Rohingya village that was sorry, not Rohingya, a, a Malaysian village with a, a few Rohingya families in it. It wasn't uh-huh. many. There were signs told that you had like people, the local people put up signs saying you have to leave. And this really developed since COVID, like uh, like a really strong like. It comes in in the last few years. Malaysia's become more nationalistic, and the Rohingya have been like the target of that, like really strong hatred of them. And they were blamed from for COVID at one point. They were like, oh it's just, uh, so. So even there, like a country that a lot of people think they thought was going to be more helpful, they found themselves really living quite miserable lives. Um, in Saudi Arabia, so like the previous king actually had invited them to come. Uh, and so there were a few Rohingya who went. They had to get like Umrah visas and like fake passports and stuff like that and then arrive and then they would announce the Rohingya and they would be allowed to stay. There was no route created for them uh-huh. to actually get there. Um, <laughs> but okay. they were given work and stuff. Like it, it was like a half-hearted, like in a way a good gesture to take some and give someone them a place to go but not not with a system that allowed them to have security um it was only good as long as that king stayed in place and obviously everything has changed in the last few years so like uh around like 2000 yeah actually like around 2018 like under like mbs's like economic reform and like his whole like shaking up of like migration and like cracking down on migrants who are undocumented Rohingya got rounded up and like thousands of them got stuck into prisons. Um, so yeah, like two of the places that had been an option for them to go to, they had to go there like through re- like dangerous means. But the two places that they thought they could go to and they would have like some ability to work to get education have also abandoned them. Mm-hmm. So there's nowhere like. In it. India, there's some Rohingya in India who smuggle in, like they face, considering how there's almost none there. Yeah. Are actually, really often in the news. <laughs> like they really often turn up in like, like politicians, like claiming there's some kind of threat or something. So there's no one. And then beyond like the region, beyond Asia, no one's talking about them. Um, aid has reduced like massively since 2017. Um, like food rations got cut in February, I think, and they're about to be cut again. Because so nothing's changed. The World Food Bag Food Program says it hasn't. This isn't the Bangladeshi government doing it. It's the World Food Program says no one's giving us the money. Mm-hmm. Um, like like one one guy phrased it. Like a European Union like aid worker once said to me. Um. If if basically people were cared were feared that Rohingya were going to turn up in the EU on EU borders, like seeking asylum, there would be more money sent here to keep them away, to keep them like living better and like happy where they are. But because that's not going to happen, it's too hard for them to get there. 
um, they don't care. And so I think that's it. Like what's happened now, the place we're at now is 2017 seems far away. We haven't heard of much any violence against them in Myanmar because there's not really anyone left. There are, there are some Rohingya left, but it's a minority of them. Like most of them are in Bangladesh or elsewhere now. Mm-hmm. Um, very few are left. And they're just like confined to like very small spaces. And so it's not, I guess, considered like an imminent risk of like big violence happening there again. So they're just leaving them in Bangladesh. Uh, which in a way you start to see like, like this is Bangladesh now like been left with them and no one wants to help it. Um, it's considered like a place where if, because Bangladesh this time has not, it has done, it has put in a lot of restrictions, but it hasn't done them to the extent of Myanmar. Myanmar. No, and it hasn't done the extent to that of like 91 and okay. it hasn't like really reduced food to the point of starvation. It hasn't, it hasn't like actually forced people back. It's tried a couple of times to do repatriations. Um, like it's brought buses, but it hasn't forced no one got on it and it didn't force anyone on. I, I think the what what it did do was relocate people to an island in like the Bay of Bengal where it created like a new camp. There's um, so there's with, an island now with a camp with yeah. a bunch of uh, with a yeah. lot, a lot of room. Yeah, okay. it's quite a lot now. It's more than a hundred thousand now. Okay. Um and there's a lot of stories about like that people didn't consent to that, or it was like kind of forced out of them. Or coerced out of them. So, um, but yeah, like it hasn't forced people back. And because it hasn't forced people back, no one seems to be like it's getting less and less money every year. Okay. Like everyone's giving less money to support them. Um, and so no one is offering to, no one's really significantly offering to take them. Neighboring countries don't care. They, like, the big like international powers don't care. There's mm-hmm. been no, there's been no momentum towards like really like forcing Myanmar to make it safe, give like to meet and not just like, so one of the things I explore, like that the concepts I have with the book was like in 90, in 78 and 91, like people were sent back and it was like deemed safe, but like safety isn't just like a lack of a military operation or fighting right now. There needs yeah. to be like proper conditions for it. Like is that's just a bit of quiet. Um, there needs to be safety. And the most common thing Rohingya talk about is citizenship, but um it's not obviously not as as like simple as citizenship. Like a lot of governments will attack people who are their citizens, right? Like they will kill people who are yeah. their citizens. But I think when they talk about citizenship, it's about if they get to the point of being given citizenship, hopefully that means a change in attitudes. That means things are better. There needs to be a whole change, like a real systematic change to like reintegrate them in society. Possibly like people, some people talk about like compensation. Um, uh, But none of that's happening. So the world has, yeah, the world has failed them, forgotten them. Like, there's no momentum anywhere. And uh, the symptom now, the, what you see now is that boat trafficking has started again. It yes. went quiet in 2015 when, like, the mass graves were found in Thailand and like, there was international focus on it. 
and they had to crack down on the traffic networks. But they didn't really, they arrested a few people, but not many. Um, and so it's all started again. And it's relatively small numbers now, but it, it it's constant. There's constant reports of boats going and people can't live in those conditions in Bangladesh forever. Um, and uh, I, that's, that's what's, there will be more people trying to profit off getting the Rohingya out of Bangladesh to other places and people will die along the way. And I think that's, that's the real, like that, that's what happens when the world thinks it's okay to just leave like a million people in a refugee camp. Wow. My last question is, is there a way to end this episode in a more uplifting manner? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it is, it feels tough because like I spent, I've spent so much time talking to all these people about all the things that have gone wrong and like, these are like really horrible stories. And, it can feel like pretty like hopeless hopeless but i think it's really when you go there and like you speak to people and despite all the restrictions and all the how little they have to work with there are loads of people like trying to make their best of it and trying to like find their way out and I think I think part of the difference between now and before is there are more tools. Like I don't like to like glamorize like the internet and make it like seem like it's the solution to everything. But mm-hmm. people it has we are now in an era with more information and more access to tools and more so there are ways that Rohingya have been able to like speak out for themselves and also like learn, learn languages, learn skills. Um, and I think they're able to force their voice forward in a little bit in a way they couldn't before. Um, you have Rohingya photographers who are like the ones now, like it's very hard for any journalist to go to the camps anymore. Um, but you don't, and also you don't have that many photographers who care that much anymore. They don't see that as the place to go. Um, you have Rohingya photographers doing all of that now. Like the photos you see from the camps now, Rohingya did them themselves and they're doing it with like, like pretty cheap, you know, like the cheap smartphones they get made in like China and India. They, they get access to those. They take really, really good photos. Um, they they have access to social media which can upload them. Um, yeah, people doing like activism, like making public statements, making clear that the, when something like the relocation to Basanjara happened, the islands that they don't want this, and like um, just showing that their opposition, so that things don't just happen without. And no one knows whether they accepted it or not. Um, they have a bit of a voice. It comes with consequences sometimes, like, but they they have some platform now. Um, like one of the most interesting things was like there was this group that used to like get international legal documents, like like the Human Rights Act or something like that, and study them as a group. Wow. In like a little tent, like just so they the idea was that we should know 
international human rights law so that if we get the chance, we can go and speak for ourselves. And I think that's where the hope is. Like it's from themselves because I think like in 2017, there was this idea like that we'll listen to what the world said. Like all these, because they had so many like international visitors and like diplomats and UN ambassadors and all these types of people all were coming and all asking them for their stories. And they thought this is going to turn into something like what so many people are interested yeah. Um, these people know what they're doing and no one, nothing happened but so I don't think I think people are realising people have got to the point that they can't rely on that they, they will do it themselves and I think there will be people who will do it themselves and I think that's where the hope is that there, there are there's a lot of potential there well um, thank you so much this was such a informative episode um is there anything else you want to add in um no that's all right thanks i mean yeah if just the book is out in a, yeah talk about yeah talk about the book Sell the yeah book. so it took a long time like i started writing it in 2015 well i started researching it in 2015 writing it 2017 um and it just came out in the uk in february and it came out in the us this uh like a week ago mm-hmm so um yeah it's available to order ebooks um yeah i think i I won't pretend it's not it's an easy read but i think i think there's a lot first of all just to clarify when you say easy read it's not a difficult like hard complicated language it's it's a easy very interesting book to read you're very immersed in it i highly recommend it but emotionally it's very difficult because you're exposed to such suffering yeah 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 i mean like i mean it's it, it's not yeah it's uh it's an emotional book. <laughs> yeah. but um yeah the feedback so far is people like the writing and i, I think it's i did great book. i did put a lot of effort into making it not just like a kind of uh like very factual history book. historical it, dry text yeah, it's, no, yeah it, not, it's not, humanized yeah, yeah and it, i've really put a lot of effort into like as much as possible this is what this is the stories of Real like people. the Rohingya I've spoken to, and there's there are like there are quite a few characters in it, and I try to make them the focus of it. There are like so many more people that I spoke to who are not like featured in in it in the way that I would like to. Like there there could be so many more people who could be like five chapters each. Yeah, but um, yeah, like I think I think it's my hope for it is not just ex what it shows about the Rohingya, but also I think what it shows about the international system and like what happens to a people when you're just completely, when they can just completely failed and like just allowed to be like languish in camps because they don't fit into like, there isn't the political will or interest to, to help them. Um, Definitely. So yeah. Awesome. Hopefully people will like it and buy it. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. It's a really good book. Thanks. Thank you uh, so much. And I'll, I'll release this episode this week, Friday, hopefully.